Well, last time we're going to get to look at this outline. <laughs> Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one book, and we're doing the last uh, the last section of chapters 11 through 13, which on this outline are Nehemiah's plans. Um, they. Um, A number, it appears that a number of years have gone by. Um, I'm not sure whether the entire book is in chronological order because this dedication of the wall is in chapter 12 and that just seems... Well, I mean, if it happens in the order in which the book's written, then they finished the wall and waited about a dozen years before they dedicated it. But it may be that um, Nehemiah may have just chosen to put this part of the story in toward the end um, just kind of have a nice way of wrapping up the book. I don't know. But um, this part in chapter 11, um, they had a problem. What was the problem in Jerusalem? Not enough people. people. Uh, The city was large. They had the walls done. But if you don't have enough people living in the city, you've got to have people to defend the city if it gets attacked. Walls are not enough. And so how they decide to solve that problem? Pick how they pick them. One out of ten. Okay, and which one? Which one out of the ten got picked? Some of them did, yes. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem, but there was another one. It's in verse one. They cast lots, yeah. So it was a draft. Um, I mean, back when I when I was eighteen and the the draft still existed, they cast lots. They didn't call it that, but um, the, it was it was just based on chance as to when your birthday was, as to whether you were going to get called up or not. And my draft number was like three hundred or something out of three sixty five, so I didn't get called. Um, I was not one of the one in ten. <laughs> um, so, um, then we have a list, and this is just typical of Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. They, they love all these lists of the people. Um, and um, they did lists of those who were in Jerusalem, and then in verse 20, 20 and all, they did lists of everybody else. <laughs> um, it was not a very huge number, really. Um, the, the, this chapter doesn't give us totals, but in the places where we have totals, I mean, they're, they're, the numbers would be. You know, of everybody in the whole whole of Judea, might have hit fifty thousand. I mean, just tiny compared to what they had been back in the glory days of David and Solomon. Now, this wasn't all the Jews, of course. This is just only the only the Jews who had come back. Um, then, in uh, chapter twelve, uh, the author recounts the the, geni- the the story, the list of the names. Of those who had first come back in Ezra chapter one, and the list is fairly similar to that. Uh, then in, in verse twenty-seven, we've got one of the fun parts of the of the book, the dedication of the wall. And and our map actually shows this. If you, I don't know if you can read that way back there, but dedication tour of the rebuilt walls. They started at the valley gate, and one group 
went around counterclockwise, and the other group went around clockwise, and they met about halfway around. Um, and, you know, you can just imagine what that would have been like. It just would have been dramatic. Um, a parade, you know, and a parade on top of the wall that they had built. Uh, and they were, um, they had singers with them. Uh, it was, um, it's just a, an exciting time. Uh, and then in, along with it, Nehemiah is trying to set things straight that were, weren't being done very well uh, by the people. Um, in verse 44, he appointed people over the chambers of the stores, the country, so the tithes and things like that that came in. They had to have someone in charge of it. Um, then in chapter 13, they discovered something which you know, I'm a little bit puzzled as to why they're just now discovering that because what they discover. The what? Oh, oh no, well, I'm looking at the first three verses. Yeah. Now, I, 20 years ago, Ezra had worked with these people to get them to put away their foreign wives. So it just seems odd that now they're discovering this again, but you know that's kind of the way it goes. 20 years is a long time in people's memory. So, um, yeah, and it, it was so bad that, that there were these marriage alliances with with some of the same guys who were uh, who tried to stop them from building the walls of the city, Tobiah and all. It was just it was bad. And then they and then Nehemiah discovered that they had people hadn't been given the tithes like they should. So he's and the tithes were to support who? Yeah, the Levites and the priests. And so, because they weren't supporting the Levites, the Levites had gone back to farming, and so you were having part of the temple service that was being uh, uh, not done very well. It's just a bad, uh, you know. And then another thing they were doing in, in verse fifteen was what? They're selling things on the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. Some they were working. They were trading wine press on the Sabbath, bringing in sacks of grain. They were they were buying and selling. It just Nehemiah is is pretty upset about that. Um, yes, in the book of Jeremiah, he mentions how they kept violating the Sabbath and 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 the seventy years for so the land would keep its Sabbaths because uh, they'd been violating it for such a long time. And then the book closes out with this mixed marriages and. Um, how they made the people put them away. Now, this... Yeah, go ahead, Tracy. I was wondering that it was written that no Anodites and Moabites could enter the assembly. Uh-huh. Does it say that in Leviticus? Well, yeah, my marginal note um, says it's Deuteronomy chapter 23. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it does say that. Yes. Um, so that... With the end of Nehemiah, we're at the end of the last history we have in, in, in chronology. Now, the book of Esther is also history, but it happened before Nehemiah. So, this is the last mention. After this, you've got the book of Malachi, but that's a, a prophet. And, you, and he tells a little bit about what's going on. This is the last history. And so for the next few hundred years, uh, we, we just have to wait till we pick it up in the book of Matthew. But I do want to observe that some of the changes, for the better, in fact, that have happened. I mean, it, we, we feel kind of bad when we're ending the book of Nehemiah and now here they are doing the mixed marriages again. 
And it just looks like, I mean, it looks like, wow, they're just never going to make it to you know, the first century A.D. Um, if they're going to behave like this. But if you go back to before the destruction of Jerusalem, back in the days of, of the kings, what was the big sin that was such a major problem that they were doing over and over and over? Idol worship. Now, have you noticed that in Ezra and Nehemiah, they haven't done that at all? That's, that hasn't been a problem? Now, there has been a problem of marrying women that are idolaters, and, and if they keep that up, it's going to go back to it. But idolatry had really been cleaned out. And if you think forward to in the times of Jesus, how many times did Jesus preach against idolatry while He was here? He never mentioned it. It was simply not a problem among the Jews. But that didn't mean that they were now perfect. They had other problems. And the problems we've seen in Ezra and Nehemiah have been especially intermarriage with, with foreigners. Um, a lack of putting God first. We see this when they quit paying the tithe or when they, they give up too easily on rebuilding the, the, the temple. Um, and then we saw this violation of the Sabbath here. That's discouraging to look at, but keep in mind they were worse. You know, the idolatry was was just that was just deadly to to the society. And if you jump forward to the time of Jesus, these sins I just listed, most of them they don't have in the time of Jesus. They don't have intermarriage with foreigners in the time of Jesus. They definitely do not violate the Sabbath. They did have a problem with the temple, though. <laughs> they still hadn't got that right, and Jesus had to work on that when when he was there. So God is God is moving things forward. It's not a matter of one step forward and two steps back. If it is two steps forward and one step back, quite quite often, and it, and it, it seems like a strange way to do things, but He is moving forward to, for for the people prepared when He sends His Son. Any more questions, comments? Yeah, Tracy. I was wondering, in Ezra 1, is that the same king that was in Nehemiah was the top there? No. Um, here's a chart of the time frame. Nehemiah, Ezra 1, Cyrus was the king, and Zerubbabel was the one who, who returned with the people. The next thing is the book of Esther with King, King Xerxes called Ahasuerus in our Bible. Then back to Ezra and you have the second return under King Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah is also King Artaxerxes. Now there were other kings in between too, but uh, those, are the, those are the ones where we have major events happening. So, um, no. Um, Cyrus was the king here. And uh, several kings are in between Cyrus and Xerxes. All right. Um, I got a very brief outline of it of Esther. I I love this outline. I wish I had been the one to invent this, but that's not my gift. Uh, But this is just a clever outline. Uh, The three groups uh, that they've grouped the Book of Esther are the feasts. We first have the feast of Ahasuerus. Then we have the feasts of Esther. How many does she have? Two. Two, yeah. 
Then we have the Feast of Purim. Now, why do they have plural on that one? Okay, that's one thing. Yeah, they had to do it every year. They did it for two days, yeah. Uh, which, and the book explains why. So, um, the feasts, the book is about feasts, and it's an interesting, very interesting way to contrast the, what these different feasts are accomplishing. You look like you wanted to ask something. No, okay. <laughs> Alright, and so then the, the history, we, Esther is in between. Uh, the two sections of the book of Ezra as we saw here. Um, But there's no interaction that we know of between any of these characters. Nobody in the book of Esther is is mentioned in Ezra or Nehemiah and vice versa. There's just no overlap. They were not in the same place. Where does Esther take place? The capital of Susa. Now it is true that's where Nehemiah was when he started. Although he was... Nehemiah was so far later than Esther that um, you know, I, I'd be amazed if there was any overlap in terms of, of people. But um, we're not going to need the map very much for the book of Esther. It all takes place in one place, although it affects the Jews all over the empire. There was nowhere, I don't think there was anywhere where Jews were living at that time who would not have been affected by this story of Esther. They were all in this in this kingdom. 127 provinces. 127 provinces. That's right. That's a lot of provinces, isn't it? <laughs> Even if they're small. <laughs> yeah. So that was before Nadabon had gone to Jerusalem. Now don't say none. What about Zerubbabel? Oh, that's true. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the first group had gone back. But the second group and, and later hadn't gone. Um... Alright, now, I'll just mention, when you look at Xerxes and Ahasuerus, you say that doesn't look the same at all, but my understanding is that the Hebrew for Ahasuerus and the Persian for Xerxes are identical. Um, that just somehow the way the two have gotten into our English <laughs> have gone two different directions. But they, it, there's no question that it's the same person. Um, and there's a picture of him. <laughs> this is Xerxes. Uh, on a pillar in front of his palace. I assume that that's the remains of his palace back there, but I don't know for a fact. Um, now, time has not been kind to this guy's face, which a lot of us have that problem. <laughs> Although there's been a lot more time for him than for some of us. Uh, but the one thing you can learn from, from just this picture is this guy was powerful. I mean, and, and you see... He's got these slaves that are you know, holding the parasol over him to keep the sun off. Uh, this person here is, is, is whisking the, the flies off of him, which would, you know, some of us might appreciate a lot <laughs> around this time. And, and this person has a, 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 um, a towel, <laughs> I guess, to <laughs> clean him off if he gets too sweaty or something like that. Uh, he, he's got a lot of power. And of course, you read the book of Esther and you really realize this guy has power. Um, there's another picture then you can get you can see his face more clearly there so now we know what he looks like um, <laughs> it doesn't do much for him um, well that's what he reigned over that doesn't deal any at the 127 problems in fact I don't think anybody today could, could give you that list but 
It, it does say from India to Ethiopia. And, and the map certainly shows that. It just I don't think there were any Jews living outside of Xerxes' empire at this time. It just he controlled everything. Here's the little Judah there. There's Jerusalem, the little Judah there. Here's Susa, smack in the middle. And that's where the, the all the action of, of the story is going to take place. Um show that they have uh, authority over Macedonia. Yes. Yeah. Um he, he he did a there's a very famous part of his history. It, the, the story starts in his third year when he has six months of banqueting and and, and from what I've read that in the history, it, part of his goal during that time was to try to get, try to get everyone united on a major invasion. They were going to invade Greece. He was going to take you know the whole rest of it, and uh, he came pretty close and 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 had some just some you'd think chance chance occurrences that caused him to lose, and. Um, I don't. I don't know all the stories. The historian Herodotus really focused on this one piece of history. He, he taught. He was a Greek, and, and to him, the you know this invasion of Greece, which is major. Um, and I've I've read that they lost because of just kind of the capriciousness of nature. There was a storm that came through and and wrecked his boats, and so he ordered his soldiers to go out and whip the sea. And and you can you can get some. Pictures of these guys out there whipping the images. This is the same king that we're going to read about in this book. And we say, uh, I'm not so sure of this guy. Well, you get the same impression when you read the book. He had a lot of power, but um, yeah. I don't have a lot of respect for him just from what I read in, in the in the book. But I guess that's that would be true of an awful lot of kings <laughs> through history, and including some that are in power today. Um, all right, so I'll turn that off, and we'll just look at the story because I don't have any more slides. It's just, it's just a story, and it is a great story. It, it, this is a story that even people that don't believe the Bible, that care nothing about God, they recognize this story as great literature. I mean, it really. I mean, it's got, it's got all the features you need to have for a good story, and it's got the suspense. It's, it's got the villain. It's got the um, last-minute rescue. I mean, it's just—it's just a wonderful story. It also has some features that are very, very strange for any book in the Bible. Um, and anyone want to tell me what one of the? Yeah, Ralph. Never mentions God in the entire book. And there's something else it never mentions: prayer. There's no mention of prayer. And and that's especially noticeable when we come right out of Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah is just praying all the time. And you know, remember me, O oh God, for good, he'll say. And the book of Esther has no mention of God, no mention of prayer. And and um, I think that bothered the Jews because when the Greeks translated the book into into Greek, I, I say when the Jews translated it into Greek, the Septuagint translation, they actually added some sections that had prayers to God in them. They were kind of fixing the problem, but but I don't think that the author forgot to put God in or forgot to put prayer in. I think the author was trying to make a point that 
And this is really... We are in the same situation today that these people were then. God's invisible. When God does things, He doesn't tell you, you know, I am now doing something, you know, I'm, I'm causing this war over here. God doesn't do that. I mean, you read, you read in, in, in the newspaper or watch on TV, you know, what's happened today. And God never says, you see that over there? I did that and I've got these plants. He's invisible from that standpoint. We see Him by faith. And so when we read this story, we're reading it from the human standpoint. But we are reading about people who believe in God. I mean, why else would, would Esther tell Mordecai to fast for three days? And obviously, it's because she believes in God and God is the one who's going to rescue them. But, you don't read, and, the God, and God changed the king's heart. You don't read that. Just like when we see things happen, we say, wow, that was a close call. And we think to ourselves, I think I know why that happened. <laughs> but God hasn't told us that. And, and so the, the, the book of Esther is just very interesting in that, from that standpoint. Yeah, John. And it says that towards the end, uh, after uh, their deliverance, the people were fearful of the Jews and many saw the Yeah, they actually, they actually pro- became proselytes of the Jewish religion. So which suggests that they recognized that these events were supernatural. Yes, I hope that's why they were, they were doing it. Yes, I hope there was true faith in God when they were doing that. All right, so now the story, and it just you know, it's a fun story to, to get to talk about. Uh, the first chapter is a feast, certainly six month feast of of King Ahasuerus, and he's showing off all his glory. And you read and you read it, you really get a picture of a very wealthy king here, and and he was. I mean, he was. You know, you saw the area he was over. Just wow. Um, but unfortunately, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, now that one little little phrase lets us know this is not going to be very good. What follows, and so he he viola, he wants to violate um, what anybody in that culture would have considered uh, right. He's going to violate this and bring Queen Vashti out to show her beauty before the people, um, and. She, and in my in my opinion, I think she was she was righteously correct. Um, but boy, the king is not the sort of person you want to go against. And he gets mad. What's he going to do? And, and you know, so she gets kicked out as queen. I mean, she's still his wife, but she's not the queen anymore. He had lots of wives. Um, although, although she, she's still his wife, I don't think she's allowed even to see him anymore. So she's just living in the. She's going to live in that palace. Of the women, which she's not the only wife that never sees the king again. I mean, and he had this rule that you know, he meets he meets his wife once on the on the wedding you know what you could call the wedding night, and if she's not memorable enough, he'll never see her again because the only way he's going to see her again is if she he calls her by name. He's got so many. If he forgets one, that's just the way it goes. You know, she's just. She's a has-been. And this... The kind of behavior you see in in this man is is the behavior that a lot of people think if they could do it, it would solve a lot of their problems. 
I mean, th- there are people who feel like the, the only reason I'm not happy is because I can't do anything I want. I can't have everything I, I please to have. And this king almost could. Um, it didn't solve his problems, of course, because um, he was still a sinner like the rest of us. Um, but that's, of course, not the main point of the book. The main point of the book is that even in the midst of, of a person so self-centered and, and, and corrupt as the King Xerxes, that God could use someone to rescue His people. So in, um, in chapter 2, it says, uh, after these things, when the anger of King Ahaziris had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. <laughs> he started to feel bad. And, you know. but, but of course, and when a Persian king makes a rule, you can never take it back again. They had, that was one law, and the law was actually above the king even. You, 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 as a king, you can make any law you want, but once you make it, you can't take it back. And so if he tells Vashti she can't see him again, then that's the way it's going to have to be. So the king's attendants come up with some other suggestion. Hey, let's get a replacement for her. Let's have a beauty contest. Get all the beautiful... And so I don't know how many he brings in, but I mean, in history we read that some of, some of those sultans of, of old in, in this area had a lot of women in their hair and harem. It was just... Yeah. So, um, and just by chance, seemingly, there's this lady named Hadassah who, who that was her Jewish name, and her Persian name was Esther, um, who was taken in to be one of his wives. I don't, I don't know how it worked. You know, whether did you sign up? You know, I want to compete, or did someone just go walking down the street and say, "Hey, you look nice. Come on, you, and you're going to add, be added to this harem." I, I don't know how it worked, but um, she's she's now in there, and, and after a year of preparation, she gets her one chance to see the king. Um, and she did something that was pretty smart. And what was that? She asked for advice. Yeah, she asked for advice. She recognized that she's not the one that knows everything. And 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 the advice she got was from a guy, uh, one of the eunuchs, who would be very likely to know what the king would like. And whatever he suggested, she did it. She. So you you at least see some humility on her part. And we don't we don't know, learn a lot about her at this point, but humility and. And the king was so taken with her. No, no explanations of why. You know, no mention of God and all this. It's just <laughs> he's staying with her. He proclaims her to be the new queen. And then we have one other event before we get to the major point of the book. We have one other event in chapter two. And what is that? Mordecai exposes. Yes, her cousin Mordecai, who is the one who actually raised her. He, he's sort of her father because her parents were dead. Um, he saved the king's life. He found out about this plot and uh, saved the king's life. And they wrote it down in the book of the Chronicles of, of the king and then the king forgot about it. Uh, you know, and again, no reason why, no explanation, no, no observation that you know, God had His reasons. <laughs> they just, the king just didn't think about it anymore. So now, chapter 3 gets to the main point of the book. Now the book really is a book intended to teach the Jews why they had the Feast of Purim. Um, and, and in chapter 3 we're introduced to where the word Purim comes from. Uh, in chapter 3 we have this man named Haman. It says he's an Agagite. 
Now this doesn't mean he's related to King Ahag that got killed by Samuel. There was actually a, a, an area of a province, or a small area of land that was called Agag and that's where he was from. And anyway, he gets promoted and he, he, I think he's like second in command in the, in the kingdom. And uh, what kind of a character is he? Vain and proud. Yeah, vain and proud. Um, not, a lot like, not a lot different from the king <laughs> from what I could see. But um, you can get away with a little bit more of vanity and a little more pride when you're the king versus second in command. But second in command can do an awful lot. And, and the king had actually given an order what was to be done when this guy walked through the streets? Everyone bows down to him. And everyone did except Mordecai. Mordecai. Yeah. And I don't... The story doesn't even really give us enough detail to know why he chooses not to do that. Um, but there's always some helpful person around to point out to Haman what he didn't even... I mean, Haman doesn't even see this. And when he walks in the streets, he just sees everybody bowing down and all. he just feels all so good. And he had never even noticed Mordecai until someone pointed it out. You know, hey, look. And, you know, they're going to find out whether Mordecai's excuse stands. Yeah, nice guys, these people. Um, and when Haman sees it, the excuse does not stand with Haman. <laughs> um, you know, I don't care if nine million people bow down to him. If one guy doesn't, it ruins his whole day. He just, it, it's just, he just, he can't be happy with this. So we got to deal with the guy. And the only way to deal with someone who has committed a sin as terrible as that is to kill him. And that's what Haman intends to do. But somewhere along the line, he realizes that even that's not enough. <laughs> so what does he decide to do? Everybody that's related to him, all the Jews will be killed. Yeah. And he asks the king for permission, and the king just gives him permission. I mean, just... Uh. But, where does the name Purim come from in this chapter? Yes, the Persian word for the lot is pur. And what's, what they cast the lots for? Yeah, they had to get a date. It had to be an auspicious date. You know, that the gods would favor. <laughs> well, God certainly did pick this date. <laughs> That was in the first month when they cast the lots, and which month was it? Did it come out to? <laughs> the last month. You couldn't have gotten farther if you planned it. Um, but that's all right. Haman can be patient. <laughs> He's got to wait eleven months, but he can do that. <laughs> and so he sets this all up. Everyone has almost a year to get ready to wipe out the Jews, those hated people. Chapter 4. Mordecai learns about it. What does he do? Yeah. Yeah, he's just grieved. And then, if you're dressed like that, you can't go into the palace, so he can't go talk to his cousin. She's not allowed out in the street, apparently. She's the king's wife. So he has to talk to her through one of these eunuchs who's a servant. And he's, he, he, he gives Esther a copy of the decree, what's going to happen to the people. He says, you got to go talk to the king. And what's her response? Unless I have someone I could be killed. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're his favorite wife. 
There's one rule for everybody in the kingdom, and that is nobody sees the king unless the king asks for him. It's not your idea, it's his idea. And he hasn't had the idea for about a month to call her in. He doesn't know when she's going to get to see him again. There is one exception, though. A somewhat risky one, but what is that? You can stand at the entrance. You can stand there, and if he holds out the scepter, then you live. If he doesn't hold out the scepter, what happens? You get put to death. Yeah, you came into the king's presence without being invited. You're you're done for. So they spend three days fasting, getting ready for it. Esther and her servants and Mordecai and all the Jews. They spend three days fasting to get ready. Now, obviously, God's involved in this. I mean, who are you fasting for if not for God? But He's not mentioned. So on the third day, chapter five, she went there and she stood. She sees her husband in all his great splendor sitting on his throne. What's going to happen? I mean, I'm sure she's trembling. And he sees her and he's so happy. He holds out the scepter. She came in there and she touched the top of the scepter. And then the, oh, the king, oh, well, what, do, what do you want? I'll get anything you want. Right up to half my kingdom. Which is sort of a proverbial thing, obviously. She, she's not supposed to ask for that. <laughs> um, what did she ask for? Yeah, just uh, could you would you please come to a banquet today? Well, of course the king knows she's not risking her life just to have him over for one meal. She's got to have something on her mind. But it, this builds up the suspense. I mean, what what could possibly be on her mind so important that she risked her life? And so, of course, Haman gets invited, and of course, Haman doesn't have any choice but to come. But he's happy to come because. How could you be more honored than to be one of all two people to go to the queen's feast? And so after the after that feast, he was so proud. Ah, oh. and yet one thing happened that just ruined the whole day. And what was that? Mordecai. He saw Mordecai, <laughs> and he's got to wait all the way till the twelfth month to knock this guy off. So he comes home and he tells the family all the honors and you know. The queen only invited me and the king, and tomorrow we're the only ones coming. And and yet, I just I just I can't stand it. <laughs> and so, what do they tell him to do? Yeah, build a gallows. How big is this gallows? Yeah, fifty cubits. So that's seventy-five feet high. I mean, this thing is enormous. I don't. I mean, how long is it going to take to build a gallows seventy-five feet high? Um, and this is like late in the day and then he wants to hang the guy the next morning my guess is that it was a noisy place that night <laughs> all these workmen that he, he brought in there to build the 75 foot high structure so they'll be ready in the morning because he's I mean there's no question as soon as he asks the king he can't do it on his own but as soon as he asks the king he's going to say sure well, the king's already said you could knock off the entire race what's one guy early going to hurt Meanwhile, and this, and of course, this is—I mean—it's just a wonderful story, and and just marvelous because this is the way God works. You know, um, I mean, so many stories we read that and we say, "Well, you know, that only happens in stories." With God, He makes the stories. So the king has a problem that night, and what's the problem? No, you're, you're getting, yeah, Ralph. Can't sleep. Yeah. Anybody ever have that problem? 
You know, it doesn't matter if you're the most powerful guy in the world and you've got more gold than anyone could count. If you can't sleep, there's nothing that's going to be done about it. And again, I mean, you can read various articles about all the things to do with if you can't sleep. But and what what he did is one of the things they recommend. Even you know, just well, quit trying to fight it. Just get up and do something, and then maybe you can go back to sleep. Well, apparently it was already so late in the night that he got up and he never went back to bed. He got up and he's going to read. But back in those days, um, your average person couldn't read, and the king included. So he just called someone in to read to it. What are you going to read? <laughs> You know, they didn't have you know books like Robinson Crusoe and, and Swiss Family Robinson, so he read the Chronicles of his Kingdom, which I would think you know if anything's going to put you to sleep. You know. But lo and behold, they just happened to read about what Mordecai, Mordecai and and saving his life, and the, and the king's kind of thinking is going. And he, I'm sure he's remember that, but he says, "What will I ever do for Mordecai?" And and they say, "Well, we didn't do anything for him." He feels so terrible. I mean, this is just what a way to treat a guy that has saved your life. And he and he's just he's in a mood that he's got to do something big to make up because that's embarrassing. I mean, who knows how long it's been, but that's just so embarrassing to to have had your life saved and do nothing, and yet he's the richest guy in the in the world. He could he could do anything for this guy. So he, he's racking his brain. When who comes in? Haman comes in, you know, and, and the king says, "Well, who's out there in the court?" Haman, oh great, you know, call him in. You know, Haman, I've got, I got a problem. What, what, what should, what is to be done for the one whom the king desires to honor? He doesn't mention who it is, and who does Haman think it's, it has to be? <laughs> so Haman suggests things that are completely over the top. I am telling you. If Haman had walked in that morning and said, King, you know what I really like is to wear one of the robes you've robe, worn and to ride on a horse you've ridden on and ride around through the street, I'd like to do that. He would have been put to death on the spot. That is, you just absolutely do not do that. But he wasn't asking, he wasn't suggesting about himself, he was suggesting about this hypothetical person the king wants to honor. He's just suggesting, you know. This is something the person would like, and, and I'm sure that, you know, whoever it is, I'm sure they'd really like it. Good, the king says, go do that for Mordecai. <laughs> oh, by the way, what was it he had wanted to mention when he came to see the king? We'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, John. Over and over again, we see um, a person asking or receiving advice from those close to them, and it turns out to be a problem for the person who receives the, you know, the advice. Here, you have the advisor got a big problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, obviously. I mean, Haman's problem is pride. And the person of pride is going to be brought low. And, and I mean, you read this and you just think, who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my! This is this is great. But of course, Haman does that. I mean, you, you don't you don't tell the king no when he says Haman does everything. You know, leads for guys. 
I, I wonder what Mordecai thought as he was being led to the streets by Haman. <laughs> Haman is the one who has to force the declaration. Oh yeah, he's uh, thus it will be done for the man the king desires to honor. He's the guy leading the, the horse. Oh. And so he goes back, he covers his head. He's so he's so grieved. He covers his head and he tells us his family about all the bad things that have happened to him. And his wife says, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And that turns out to be a prophecy, of course, that comes true. And then suddenly the, the eunuchs, who are, whose job is to summon the guests, he's the guest, they bring him to the banquet. He's not in a real good state for this banquet. But he's going to be pretty surprised anyway. So they have the second banquet. Now this time, Esther had promised the king that she would tell him her request if he came a second time. You know, she's not going to just carry this on, you know, third banquet. And I don't know why she carried it on this long, except that maybe she was just getting cold feet. She just This is so scary because she's asking the king to go back on his own word. I mean, his seal was on that, that thing that said that her whole race would be wiped out. It's just a very difficult thing. And, and of course, we know what kind of guy he is. We've seen this. I mean, just very dangerous for her. But finally, she gets to that point, and the king says, "Well, you know, what's to be done for you?" And she says, "Well, what I'd like for you to do is to spare my life and the life of my family and my whole race." Um, who would ever, who ever presume to do that? And I wonder whether, in his mind, he's thinking, "Uh oh, I think I know where this came from." You know, I think I remember Haman, you know, offering to pay me ten thousand talents of silver if we could wipe out a race. And then she says, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And Haman suddenly realizes this is not such an honor to be <laughs> the only guy invited to the queen's feast. And the king is really mad. And he goes out and goes walking around the garden. Which is a good idea, although I think he was still pretty mad by the time he got back in. Uh, but um, Meanwhile, Haman's trying to ask the, king, the queen you know, for mercy. And I doubt that she's at all inclined to give him any mercy given what he is what he has done and what he's trying to do. But we don't read what she said because when the king got back and he sees Haman falling down next to her begging her for mercy, he says, um, and I, he says, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? I, I mean, I don't think he really believed that, but um, it certainly expressed um, his decision. And so they covered his covered Haman's face and you got another one of these helpful guys here. <laughs> you remember the helpful guy that told Haman about Mordecai? Now there's a helpful guy telling the king about Haman. Hey, what, do you know there's a gallows in, in uh, Mordecai's yard that he made to hang Mordecai on? The guy that spoke good on behalf of the king? <laughs> hang him on it. <laughs> so they hung him on it. But the story's not over. Because the law still stands. Just because you've knocked off the guy that wrote the law doesn't mean the law is done. So the so Esther has to go, and apparently she had to take her life in her hand again and stand there where she's not allowed. And the king again held the scepter out for her, and she begged him to to reverse the law. And and he explained to her um, in verse eight, any decree written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. So, she gets her cousin to write another law 
And what's the other law say? Yeah, so they can defend themselves. And that, and they have plenty of time because, of course, the law had fallen on the twelfth month, so they still have quite a bit of time, so they send out this decree. And then by the time the twelfth month comes, they're... Um, the government officials understand which way the wind's blowing. They understand that the guy who is second in command is a Jew, and he's really on the side of the Jews. So they, so these, so you've got the government actually helping the Jews, and you have this big battle in chapter nine, because apparently there were there were plenty of people prepared to try to wipe out the Jews, and I, I mean, no surprise when we saw back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, there were these enemies always trying to do harm to them. And so, but the tables are turned, and the Jews were able to destroy their enemies. And uh, in the capital city, they destroyed um, how many did it say? Five hundred men. That's in verse twelve. And so then Esther asked the king if they could have another day to do this. And so they killed um, three hundred men the next day. But in the outlying provinces, they didn't get an extra day for it because there was no time to get the word out to them. So that's how they ended up having two different days that they celebrated. They each celebrated they celebrated the day afterward, after the the vengeance on their enemies, the day that they rested, and that became the feast of what? Of Purim. Yes, celebrated this day. Um, what month is that in? It's in the month of Adar, which is the twelfth month. So and this corresponds to February to March of our of our calendar. And really, the Book of Esther is a book designed to explain where that feast came from, so that the, so these people would know at the, as they celebrate it every year, they would they would be able to read this story and know where it came from. And of course, it's a testimony to to God, who's never mentioned in the book. It's a testimony to God of how how He. Uh, rescued his people in a time of great danger. And, and if you look over the history, there have been several of these times in the history when Satan has really tried to wipe out the promised seed before Jesus could come. Can, can anyone name me another time when that happened? When Satan tried to wipe out? Yeah, what? Athaliah. Yeah, remember when Athaliah tried to kill all the royal seed and, and only one escaped? And that was, that was very similar to this. Earlier than that, there's an even bigger one. In Exodus, throw all the boy babies in the river. Try to wipe out, again, try to wipe out the seed. And then there's a last one, at least before the promised seed comes. Shortly after Jesus was born, King Herod ordered all the boy babies killed. Again, you see this over and over where Satan is, he does not want to have to face his promised seed. And if he can wipe out the whole race or wipe out. At least all the babies that might, you know, he might be among, he doesn't have to face them. So it's a very, the story is very important, more important, I think, than the Jews realized even. Um, and then it finally closes out with a, one of the shortest chapters in the Bible, this chapter 10, that just tells about um, the accomplishments of Mordecai and uh, his favor with the king. Yeah, Ralph. Were there any other feasts uh, that, that they kept doing that were not uh, from the time of Moses? Yes, there was one that was added after the Bible was after the Old Testament was completed. 
Uh, it's called Hanukkah, um, and and it celebrated the when when they got what was that wicked king's name Antiochus Epiphanes. He desecrated the temple by, by sacrificing a pig in the temple and he forbade them to worship and all that. And It took them something like three and a half years to, to fight him out. And when they finally got the temple purified again, they had the, the Feast of Hanukkah that celebrated that. So, yeah, that's, that's one. Yeah. Does anyone think of any others? Those are the only ones I, I can think of. Next week, we start a non-history book, the book of Job, where it's part of the poetry and wisdom section of, of the Bible. Um, it's also, I mean, every one of these books is, is very interesting, but it's very different, and it, and it will require a little bit more effort to understand it. Um, if you found Esther delightful and easy to read, uh, Job, it, it has a little bit different delight to it. I mean, it's a delight once you understand it, but it requires a a little bit more effort. So um, we'll look forward to starting the book next week. Uh, John? Uh, the issue of plunder in uh, chapter 9, verse 16, at the end, the Jews have defeated all these enemies, but they did not lay hands on the plunder. Yeah. Um, but presumably, one of the reasons Haman gave 10,000 pounds of silver. <laughs> He's going to get rich off of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they were doing that, I assume, to, to demonstrate that they were not doing this out of greed. They were not doing just to take something that belonged to somebody else. They were doing this to defend their lives because these were their enemies who were trying to kill them. Good. Appreciate everyone's help.